you'll see that community violence and even thinking about gun violence has dramatically gone down. But when we're looking at intimate partner violence, domestic violence, those numbers have remained stagnant. They have not enjoyed these significant reductions the same way other forms of violence have, which means that the interventions that currently exist, although well-intentioned, shouldn't be the only solutions. Hello, I'm Rob Wolf, and this is In Practice, the podcast from the Center for Court Innovation, where we talk to the people who are rethinking how our civil and criminal legal systems work and contributing fresh ideas that are making our communities safer and stronger. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by some of my colleagues at the Center for Court Innovation who are doing incredible groundbreaking work in communities around New York to address the twin epidemics of gun violence and intimate partner violence. Gun violence and intimate partner violence are often viewed as separate problems requiring different responses, but neighborhoods impacted by high rates of gun violence also have some of the highest levels of reported domestic violence incidents. Access to a gun makes it five times more likely that a partner experiencing abuse will be killed. My guests today are with RISE, which stands for Reimagining Intimacy Through Social Engagement, and they work to ensure community-based gun violence prevention efforts have more tools and resources to prevent and respond to intimate partner violence. Haley Nolasco is the director of RISE. Al Tabar Hudgens is RISE's Uptown Coordinator. And Caroline Batances is RISE's Downtown Coordinator. So I just really want to thank you guys so much for joining me today. We're talking over Skype. And I'm looking forward to having a, a great conversation about your work. Great. Thank you so much for having us. We're happy to be on this call. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Haley, let me start with you. Maybe you can just give an introduction to RISE. What's the idea behind RISE and how did it come about? So I'll take you all back a few years. Uh, so uh, RISE is a very innovative project um, and I'm super excited and I'm, I'm elated to be directing this project. I have a team of super capable, super amazing, intelligent people that are really working on the ground to really reimagine how communities are really responding to intimate partner violence. So I'm super proud to be leading this effort with them, but you know, they're all leaders in their own right. So I know that you're, you're all gonna hear, you know, some amazing insight from two of my amazing team members, both Carolyn and Altabar. Just to bring us before we even got here a few years ago, uh, so I have just come back to the Center for Court Innovation. I'm very happy to be back. I had recently just came back from working at the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, specifically in their Office to Prevent Gun Violence. Prior to that, I was at the Center for Court Innovation, where I was actually working under a federal grant. It was a burn federal grant where we were actually working on a hyperlocal project in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, where we were really looking to assess the intersections of gun violence and domestic violence. And this is kind of where the idea of RISE initially had started a few years back, but it was more in a hyperlocal sense, where we were looking at two NYCHA developments and really trying to assess how does intimate partner violence intersect with gun violence in these spaces. And it was a very interesting project. We were able to survey over 300 community members. We had stakeholder meetings. We actually had a group of individuals, of stakeholders that would meet on a monthly basis to really give us a lot of feedback about what are the issues that they're seeing on the ground, community perception around this issue. And it really helped us to inform the planning process of what we were hoping to create back, back then. Unfortunately, uh, because of a lot of changes in the federal government, we were not able to get funding for this specific project at that time. But 
But when I did take on a role at the mayor's office of criminal justice, we were actually able to work in partnership with CCI to revisit looking at the intersections of gun violence and domestic violence from a more macro level, citywide level, which was super amazing. So we were able to really think about this in seeing that, well, when we were working initially, we were doing this in Bedford-Stuyvesant in partnership with SOS Bed-Stein in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And now we could actually look at this with, you know, intentionality around the city with all of our crisis management system partners and see how we can support them in just amplifying the work that they're already doing to respond to and prevent intimate partner violence. So that's where we pretty much started this work, just giving a little bit of background. So we're happy that we were able to bring it on the macro side, still working in conjunction with all of the partners um, from before. So um, we're happy to be able to elevate this and amplify this, this project. You just mentioned SOS and the crisis management system. And those are both programs related to preventing gun violence and responding to gun violence. So as you've said, Haley, your work revolves around the intersection of gun violence and intimate partner violence. And I wonder if really any of you could answer this question. What's the connection between gun violence and intimate partner violence? When we were thinking about really assessing this intersection was like, all right, since we're kind of coming out of the gun violence realm in this in this conversation, we're talking about like, if we really want to be in, intentional about saying, hey, we're trying to really eradicate gun violence in our communities, right? We can't say that we're being intentional about doing that if we're turning a blind eye to one of the issues that definitely have a huge correlation with gun violence, that being IPV, intimate partner violence. So we really wanted to find ways to incorporate that because we could think about so many different ways, and I'm sure Altabar and Carolyn will talk about it, where gun violence and intimate partner uh, violence intersect very often. So we definitely wanted to be able to equip all of our partners with the tools and resources to really help them with that work, but also have ourselves as a supportive service to also be able to provide crisis intervention support when incidents like that do occur. I feel like the the intersections exist at so many levels, right? And it's so great that we're working with the, the CMS system to acknowledge these intersections and to like bridge the gap, right? Because the, the first intersection is the intersection of the fact that it's the same systemic issues that lead to gun violence that lead to intimate partner violence. So how do we work to address these systemic issues in a way that addresses both community issues? The second way I think about it is that when we think when there's a house where family violence is happening inside the house or intimate partner violence is happening inside the house, that the young young person in that house is more likely to take part in community violence or what we talk about is gun violence. And I think those are the ways where like we kind of like the lofty ways we kind of have to think about it to see it. But I think the most simple way we we see the, the, the intersection is that so many gun violence incidences are connected to intimate partner violence in the sense of like it's rooted in intimate partner violence. There was an intimate partner violence incident that on some level became connected to a gun. Like you said, there, uh, the presence of a gun in a household increases the likelihood of, of the, the gun being used of homicide in that relationship 500%, or even like what happens when intimate partner violence happens in a household. And one of the one of the parts of the relationship has a family member or a friend that is involved in community violence and they tell them about the incident, right? And a lot of times that incident of gun violence gets reported as only gun violence, mm-hmm. but there's never a full look around of like what happened, what were some of the factors that led to that moment happening. And so many times intimate partner violence is one of the original factors and it just gets left out of the conversation. Altabar, you said that there are also some underlying factors, the same kind of underlying factors that might fuel gun violence also fuel intimate partner violence. What what kinds of factors are you talking about? I think when we think when we think about 
lack of resources in communities, right? Lack of uh, economic resources, but most importantly, I think the the lack of social emotional learning, right? And these conversations about like how do we deal with emotion, right? What does accountability look like? Who has the system told us is in power and who is disempowered or disenfranchised? And what are we doing in our own communities to like replicate those systems that tell us who is in power, who's not in power, as well as having conversations about like what health relationship norms look like, also having conversations about like who do systems tell us is important and who do systems tell us that is okay to hurt and how do we undo that? Let's talk a little bit more about the cure violence sites and the crisis management system so people can get an understanding of that because you work so closely with them. You both take a public health approach to addressing violence. What What is taking a public health approach mean? And, and maybe, Caroline, maybe you want to tackle that question. Yeah, so the cure violence approach, which is a public health approach, is the same they use when it comes to disease control. They detect and interrupt conflicts, they identify and treat high-risk individuals, and they change social norms. So those are like the three things that they go by. And as a wraparound service for the crisis management system, we take the same approach, right? We work in the same catchment areas that the cure violence sites do, since those are also the same areas that the high levels of violence into power violence are at, right? We're attentive to working with people who cause harm, the harm doers, and helping them become accountable. And we try to educate community on healthier alternatives to resolve conflicts. So that's really what the public health approach is. And a lot of what RISE is doing is also based like in community. So that's what we talk about when we do the public health approach. Does that mean that you're offering specific services or does it mean that you're making home visits? Like, what does it actually look like when you are trying to interrupt the pattern of violence or something that gets started before it steamrolls or turns into something worse? So what I would say here, Rob, is that just taking a little step back, when we're referring to the crisis management system, you know, we support them in many ways to the way that I was saying before, that we're really working to transform how we're responding to intimate partner violence. And that that actually takes, uh, we actually take from the cure violence model a lot in the work that we do when we're trying to really do the, the, this shifting community norms piece. So like when, when we're talking about gun violence, right, it's just like they're disrupting the norms that gun violence is normal. It's something that I hear in my community very often. When an incident of gun violence has occurred, they have this um, event that's called a shooting response that usually takes within seven, they usually do this within 72 hours of the incident occurring to disrupt the community to, you know, they'll usually get on like bullhorns or like on stereo speakers and just like go on to the community and say, Hey, a shooting just happened. This is not normal. Let's show you a different way. So what we take, we actually try to take the silencing out of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, where we're like, intimate partner violence is not an issue that should remain silent. This is something we should all be talking about in our communities. We should be talking about how we should have healthier relationships, how we should support one another, and also how should we, how can we hold people accountable in a healthy way? So another main portion of our work is really working with people who are causing that harm in their relationships as well. So we take from the care violence piece about the social norms piece, and then we also bring that idea that RISE has where it's just like, we're really working with people that are causing this harm. Also very similar to the Cure Balance model where they're bringing credible messengers, people who have lived experiences, may have once been that shooter, may have once been that person that was formerly incarcerated, may have once been that person that was in a gang, or, or also just may just be that person that's just well-respected in their communities. So although um, the Credible Messengers and Cure Violence Projects do have violence interrupters that really go out and actually mediate conflicts that can escalate to gun violence, our coordinators are not actually like interrupters in a sense, but they do go out there to um, really try to disrupt that norm and saying that, hey, we're really talking about 
how do we make our communities safer and more resilient from the IPV lens. So we'll host community events. We'll um, we'll just go out into communities and do pop-ups. We'll host conversations. I guess what I, I would say where our intervention will come in, since we're not on-handedly interrupting an incident of IPV, is that the, the actual crisis management system site will alert us of an event of someone needing support that has IPV-related support that has come to them. And then we would then connect them with our coordinator or our coordinator would have just been connected since they're already at the sites or supporting those sites and remain in contact pretty often with them throughout the week and throughout the days. Then we would create an assessment of like, once we've created the connection, we then meet with the person to understand what their needs are, their immediate needs, build a safety plan, whether it's the person that's causing the harm or the person that is also being harmed as well, because we're not going to turn away supports to them either that's pretty much what we'll do in that space. Like, how can we connect them? If it's emergency planning, if it's transitional services to another home, if it's, um, even if it is touching base with um, some of the more historical, traditional ways of dealing with IPV, but also letting them know that there's different ways um, that we could support them as well. So that's pretty much what our supports look like in a nutshell when it comes to like the assistance and support with the crisis management system citywide. Thank you for explaining that, Haley. Let me ask you, you're having conversations with people about a really difficult subject, intimate partner violence. And so I wonder how you engage people. I could I could see someone in crisis coming to you if they don't feel safe and they're they I think I imagine they'd be more willing if they're feeling, you know, uh, in that crisis moment to have a conversation. But the people who are perpetrating the violence, I would think, aren't used to talking about that. I guess I would think it's hard to have a conversation about that. So how do you create safe spaces for people to share? How do you get conversations like that going? Well, I definitely would say that this is definitely, um, this is a difficult topic. It's hard to get, and I don't want to just say it's buy-in, but it's very hard to get buy-in to like, hey, we're doing a community survey. Would you like to talk about intimate partner violence? So, you know, you usually get like, what? what's going on here? But you'd be surprised that community has been really open to wanting to even take the survey and even talk about it. And they'll even allude to a situation that they have seen or witnessed. So people, it's just like, they want to talk about it. They just need the spaces to be able to be comfortable to bring it up or just have somebody initiate the conversation. And I'll even allude to um, Altabar because he's actually been, he's going to be starting up some more um, gender-based workshops, but he's also been hosting uh, a lot of workshops um, that were with men or even um, with youth. Haley, I think you, you what you said like hits a straight on the head, which is the fact that like even though these conversations are difficult, what I've come to realize is about difficult conversations that people aren't having is that these are conversations that people want to have, right? And I know the way the question was framed was like, how do you get people who who cause harm to be comfortable having these conversations? I think that if we come into a space like, hey, we're here to talk about people causing harm, and yeah, our harm causes, and we want to, it's like, okay, I'm turned off. I don't want to be involved in this conversation. I don't even, I don't like what I'm being called. However, the, the conversations that we bring in the spaces and to Haley's point, right, so it, it might look like a workshop or it might look like a piece in paint or it m might look like a, a movie screening where we have a conversation about the, the relationship themes that come up in that movie. It can look a bunch of different ways. However, the, these conversations that we're having are more based in having these conversations about what are healthy relationship norms? What is an unhealthy relationship? What, what does an abuse relationship look like? How do we tell the difference Again, back to the idea of, like, who system says okay to harm, right? So, like, these conversations about, like, what ideas do you believe about the roles of women in, in relationships? What ideas do you believe about the roles of men in relationships? When we say the men, the roles of men and women, who are we leaving out, right? We might be leaving out the LGBTQIA plus community might be left out in a conversation that looks so 
heteronormative. So how do we change this conversation that we're having about men and women's role in relationship to include everybody, right? So it's so many things that we have to address in a conversation to bring people to the point of maybe being having the buy-in and the comfort with us to say, oh, as you talk, as we talked about abusive relationships or as we talked about unhealthy relationships, that that one thing that was said by Ausball or Carolyn or or Nat or Kayla or, or Ryan or Ian, right? Because there's so many members of the team, I want to make sure I say everybody's name, right? Or even Haley or Julie, right? That thing you said resonates with me. And that was something I did. And maybe I want to talk about it now because I'm comfortable with you because you came in this space with such this this honest conversation. Not about, hey, you're a bad person, you're a harm doer, but about, hey, these are these norms, these are these norms we have in our communities, because these norms are put on us by systems, let's unpack them. And as these things come up to you and they feel personal for you, then let's talk one-on-one. Because if we talk in one-on-one, then we have a space to have, have a conversation that's more tailored to you as opposed to tailored to the general community. I think, for me, the most important thing we do to, to make sure that space is kept is two things. We, we open every space with, like, group agreements, which is, like, such a... It comes off as, like, such a, like, that's such a small thing to do, but it's so important because it lets people know that this is a safe space, and if you and uh, if you do need a moment to step away from this conversation because some something this conversation has impacted you personally, um, you have the space to, and you know that everybody in this space is going to respect you, and we're going to make sure that the people in the space respect you. And that leads to the second thing that I think is so important is that we do our best to make sure that we're educated and the systems that play a part in intimate partner violence, the conditions that create intimate partner violence, what the dynamics of an inter- of, of an abusive relationship and an unhealthy relationship look like. Because as com- as uh, statements may come up in, the, in in a space that are honestly offensive to a person who may have experienced one of these things, we know that we have the tools at our disposal to address the space and let the people in the space know that that's out of line with what we believe. And we want to make sure everybody in the space knows that the beliefs of, of rise around intimate partner violence and the understanding of what intimate partner violence looks like will be things that allow people to be safe in this conversation, whether you've experienced harm or if this might be caused harm. And I would also say to that piece of working with people that are causing harm, or at least engaging that demographic and community members, also working with our crisis management system partners has proven to really be helpful in that space as well, because they already have the credibility within their communities. They already have the footprint. So in working with them um, and having that connection helps us get the community to um, warm up to us and know that we're here in a genuine space because we're already connected to the an organization that they already have established some trust with. So, um, and we're and oftentimes we we're working with the same population, whether it's causing harm in a sense of related to gun violence, or maybe there maybe somebody is already connected to their programs that already perpetuating harm in different aspects of their lives. So, you know, in that space, they may already be working with them. They may already have an outreach worker, but that outreach worker may say, you know what, you're also exhibiting, you know, harm in your relationships. You may want to reach out to Carolyn, Altabar, you know, Haley, or, you know, one of my other coordinators and really connecting with them to see how we can also give them supplemental support as well. And just letting them know that we're here to just support you. We're sans judgment. We're coming from a holistic space. And from community in general, we just start off with the forefront, just letting community members know that their voice is really required for meaningful public safety solutions. Um, We can't just helicopter into community and just say, we know all of the solutions. We know how to fix the issues because that, that would be so far from the truth. We definitely value their input and want to always have continuous conversations with members throughout the communities, um, throughout the city to really gauge their feedback on what they need and how do they perceive this issue.
I know you guys are trying to promote and support healthy relationship norms. And Haley, before the interview, you had mentioned to me that you you engage in a kind of myth busting. So I wonder if you can give some examples of what kinds of myths you've encountered as you are trying to talk about what makes for a healthy relationship. Carolyn, do you want to give some examples? I was actually going to um, pass it off to Altamar because we recently um, did a poster and billboard campaign, which we will find over New York City soon. Um, but Altamar had a catchy one where he was saying, we can have healthy relations in life, not just the movies. So I don't know, Altamar, if you want to further explain on that because I love that quote. I'm like about to get on a t-shirt. <laughs> it's one of my favorite quotes right now. So I don't know if you want to go into that. So many times when, when I've been present in these conversations with the community about like what a healthy relationship looks like, a lot of times there's this perception that when we, we're talking about healthy relationships, we're talking about a perfect relationship, and the, the, the conversation might look like, well, you know, perfect relationships don't exist. These things only exist in Disney. These are only like the movie relationships, right? And no real relationship looks like that. So it's so important that the conversation that, that we have with community around healthy relationship norms, and especially like busting the myths, is that healthy relationships aren't perfect relationships, right? Like healthy relationships are relationships that go through up and ups and downs. They have turmoil, right? There may be moments where there's a, a lapse in communication. There may be moments where the trust wavers, right? There may be moments where all these things happen, but as a team, we're both working to make sure that we're existing in a healthy space in this relationship, right? So if the trust is wavered because of something I did, I know that it's my time to step up and to, to work to rebuild this trust with my partner, right? As the communication lapse, we both know, okay, when did I stop listening to you? When did you stop listening to me? How can we go back to the space of us both listening to each other, right? Because it's unrealistic to think that there are ne there's never going to be a time in a relationship where there's an issue, right? But when we talk about relationships, that, that one myth that's so important that we bust is the, is the myth that healthy means perfect. And healthy just means always working to be healthy. Yeah, relationships are hard. <laughs> So you, you know, are, are very community-based. You are working in the community and listening to the community and engaging with people on the ground where they're at. And so that's a very different response than I think what people think of as the traditional response to domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And the, the more traditional response that I think people think about is the justice system response, you know, calling 911, the police coming, going to court, orders of protection. How does that fit with your work? Presumably in, you know, very dangerous situations, there's room for those kinds of responses, but you're, you're expanding the toolkit, it seems to me. You're offering additional resources and ways of dealing with this. So could you talk about that, the relationship between RISE and what we think of as the more traditional response? It's an interesting relationship because there's well-intentioned agencies, programs that are out there, and they are doing, you know, they're doing great work within the limitations of what they are able to do. But oftentimes, and I'll say it like this, when we're looking at overall community violence, right, and we're looking at it over the span of the past decade, you'll see that community violence and even thinking about gun violence has dramatically gone down. Although, you know, now with the pandemic, um, everything that's happened around COVID, we have seen some spikes. But generally, when we're looking across this past decade, you'd see that there's been significant decreases that have been celebrated, right? 
And it's weird to say the word celebrated because as long as there's one person being harmed, like there's still like there's still work to do, right? Each number is associated with a person. But when we're looking at intimate partner violence, domestic violence, those numbers have remained stagnant. They have not enjoyed these significant reductions the same way other forms of violence have, which means that the interventions that currently exist although well-intentioned, shouldn't be the only solutions, right? I'm sure there are spaces where they have been helpful, but for the most part, when we talk to people throughout the community, which all of my members of my team and myself have been doing, they either don't know about this, the resources that are available outside of calling 911, or they have already gone to a lot of these agencies that work towards ameliorating the effects of intimate partner violence, but have had negative um, interactions with government or, or you know, these other organizations, whether it's they may not have capacity or they're being, they feel like they're being treated like another number or they're being further traumatized through um, all these different avenues, right? Where there's just like now, now I've put it in an order of protection since now I have children, now ACS is involved. And I always I always say that the more touch points you have with government, the worse off you are, right? So I would just say, I know I, I definitely want other members of my team to really jump in on this part also, but I'm definitely just saying that with us and how we go about it is that we try to just let community members know that there's more out there because oftentimes the solution is not, they don't want to leave their relationships. They want to just find a way, a better way. But definitely, um, Carolyn, would you like to also touch point on this? Yeah, if there's some noise in the background, I do apologize. I don't know what they're doing upstairs. But like Haley said, I like to think that RISE is taking more of a transformative approach. Um, a lot of the time, what's being offered to people is very limited and not always the option what, that they want, which Haley just alluded to, right? People want to stop the violence from happening in their relationships or leave the relationship safely, not to have the other person punished or potentially harmed. And we also can't throw away the people who cause us the harm, right? We shouldn't have to either. And people are either removed from the community or punished when harm happens, which what we should be doing instead, and what RISE is aiming to do, is to guide them in the path to accountability, address the harm that was done, understand why it happened, and what conditions allowed it to happen in the first place. Let me ask you how you all got involved with this work, because it seems to me like incredibly challenging, incredibly important, but also very challenging work. So what drew you to this work? Maybe each of you could give give your answer to that question. If I'm being honest, I got led to this work completely by accident. So I had been working at a job, you know, a job that like keeps money flowing in, right? And through through me, uh, I was at the job just <laughs> just taking a super leadership role in the way that I shouldn't have taken a leadership role, right? I was <laughs> I was telling my coworkers like, "Hey, man, is this your dream? If it's not your dream, then what do we? We all need to follow, like just super like, let's all follow our dream and leave, right? Like just talking that way." And a supervisor came like, "Oh, you should go, right?" So I ended up getting fired from that job, and it's almost like this beautiful happenstance. Uh, I ran into somebody, an elder from my community, Miss Kiko. I, I want to make sure I always say her name and I speak about like options that was given to me. Uh, I ran into an elder from my community, Miss Kiko, and she connected me to uh, uh, the mayor's office to prevent gun violence. And they were doing like a youth program, a, a peer leadership program at the time. So I became a part of that. And it was specifically about like gun violence and young people being the the voice of how we address gun violence in our communities. And through that, I will be connected to the office of NGBV. They changed their name, so I want to make sure I said the name correctly. I was, through that, I was able to be connected to uh, the office of gender-based violence. And in that role, at, uh, I was hired there as a peer educator, which was kind of the same work, right? Like young people having conversations with young people about 
and now the work with specifically intimate partner violence about intimate partner violence and about like these norms and what are your rights in a relationship and like what is a healthy relationship and how do you navigate that and and what do you do when you feel like these rights you have in a relationship uh, have been taken away from you taken away from you by a partner how do we navigate technology and our relationships uh, safely what does consent look like right and that's such an important conversation to have with young people because just like messaging around relationship they're they're getting the, they're getting consent conversations just like as they come to them as opposed to like being active engaged in conversations about consent right and these are conversations that they want to have so through doing that work again it's just like this continual connection right I ended up in a space where I, I was connected to CCI, and now the, the 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 job that was offered to me was this job that collaborates the two, the two that the two areas that I've been working in. Basically, since I was 20 years old, I think I was 24 at this point when I when I started working at CCI. 25, 26. I've I've been doing it for like just working in both of those areas for a while, and it allowed this, this job now allows me to work in a space where we're having conversations that address both of these things. We're working in both areas of this issue, we're actually addressing the intersection in a way that the work that I was doing uh, wasn't so much addressing that intersection before, so it's so dope to be a part of this. Um, the work that I'm doing now is, is, is more around intervention, but it still allows me to do the prevention work because I, I really am like somebody who just loves to do the, the, the conversational prevention work, but it also allows me to do the intervention work as well. So uh, I ended up here by accident of the universe, However, I'm so happy that that actually happened because I I love doing this work and it's so important to me. That's a great story. It's like by chance, you know, a certain randomness and then you fall into something you really love and you develop the specialty. That's that's great. Caroline, what, what, how about you? How did you get involved? Yeah, I was just mentioning this to someone else earlier, but I feel like violence, experiencing violence is part of like every New York City person's origin story. Like it's somewhere in their story, they have experienced whether firsthand or like just seeing it, they've experienced violence, right? And if I experience violence in my neighborhood, I'm sure that other people experience it too, right? Because we're living in similar neighborhoods. And I grew up in public housing, so this was something that I saw often too. But what they don't talk about is the support and love that's also coming from these communities. And that support and love has strengthened my resolve to bring back healthier alternatives to resolve conflicts back to my community and to get to the root on why these things are happening in the first place, right? So I actually started off interning at CCI with Haley, which is funny because I never expected us to be back at where where we're at, where she's my supervisor. I'm like working for her, funny 360. But I actually started interning with her on the best Site anti violence project, which is what this was modeled after. Um, and I interviewed with her, and then I moved in, I moved on to working at SOS, which is one of the one of New York State's first anti gun violence projects, and it's also part of the crisis management system right now. And I was at SOS, I was a case manager, and then I moved on to being a community liaison. And when this project came back up, I was like, it's just, it makes sense for me to join it, right? Because I was interning and I was doing the work with Haley. I was on the ground with Haley. So I'm just like, it just makes sense for me to join it. And what better way to bring back these healthy alternatives to my neighborhood if I'm learning them myself and I can just bring back that information. And Haley, how about you? 
I just, you know, just hearing Altabar and Carolyn speak about the reasons why they're in this work just make me feel, again, makes me feel so full of joy around and, and just also reminding me that I really do have this great team that's really deeply invested into this work and have all had like their own experiences with why they want to be that change that they seek throughout their community. So I just wanted to like shout them out really quickly for just sharing their, their stories. Um, but for me, uh, what brings me to this work is that, so I've come from the cure violence world um, prior to working at the Center for Court Innovation, I had worked at another care violence program that had been doing a lot of work throughout Brooklyn, but had really started their footing with the CMS system in East Flatbush. Um, and that was under um, Gangsters Making Astronomical Community Changes, GMAC for short. Um, they also have another site in Fort Greene right now as well, where they're really supporting like Walt Whitman Houses, Ingersoll, and um, Farragut. So I really starting my footing with the crisis management system, cure violence world around 2014, 2015, because myself, I was interested and attracted to the work because when I was younger, um, you know, when we're thinking about youth, um, I was that young person that had that had a lot of adverse at-risk behaviors um, when I was younger, um, having been gang involved and having been um, involved in just experiencing gun and gang violence from a different lens. Um, so that's what brought me into um, being interested in wanting to support uh, the crisis management system work, but what also breaks makes this um specific project near and dear to my heart is because i although i have you know and i may and i and i just always like to be transparent in what i say i always have like a weird it's important for us to support survivors and have a survivor-based lens but even though i've experienced intimate partner violence um myself it, i'm just still weird with the i'm a survivor like you know like i'm just weird with that that piece and that's also maybe might be a part of my healing as well but that's what brings me to this work and this is why i'm very invested in really looking at the intersections of gun violence and intimate partner violence because i've experienced them both um so that's what that's that's why i'm so interested and deeply invested in 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 the work that i do together with my team I also wanted to like to Haley put up like like what she was saying about like like having a great team. When I was at the office, when I was doing peer leadership work at the Office of uh, Gun Violence, Haley was like one of the leaders there. At uh, she was somebody who like was a part of the the team that had like took us on. And I would always see Haley and say hello to Haley, and Haley would be a part of like things we did. And it was so like it was always so dope to see people who look like me in these types of positions of power. But as I've as I've come into CCI, this is when I got to hear like Haley's story more. And hearing Haley's story, it even makes it like more dope about like my connection to her when I was younger. Like, wow, not only was she somebody who like looked like me, and not only were people who looked like me making these decisions, but like these are people who look like me who came from communities that look like the community I came from in a real way and like really had these types of experiences. So like every time Haley tells her story, I'm just like, wow, like this is so dope the way that all these connections happen. And thank you for that, Altabar. And you just say, like, our team, when we look at the team, we reflect the community because, you know, we're credible in our own right, where it's just like the members of my community are comprised in, obviously this is very intentional, but are comprised of black and brown people um, that have had experiences, whether they've lived in public housing or been affected by gun violence, intimate partner violence, or, you know, just have been in these spaces and they understand and they're from from these, like, they're not, they're not working on this project from a theoretical lens. Like they're they're really like living it on an everyday basis. Like, oh, actually like what happened to my block the other day? Like, yeah, this is real, you know. My team really, really comes with this background of knowledge that, you know, and it's, it's just so interesting that now we're just being able to work on addressing these these issues from this non-traditional, very innovative new project. So I'm just, you know, just happy to have all of us together and also just happy to be here to speak about the project and where, where we're seeing this going. 
Well, it's amazing listening to you guys because it's, it's, you're doing fascinating work and it's really clear you guys know what you're talking about, both from your own experience and the work that you've been doing for so many years and then what you've been doing here just within RISE, what you've been learning. So I wanted to ask you just to kind of wrap up, you know, the program's relatively new and so I wonder what lies ahead. I know you've still been, in some respects, putting things into place. So, so going forward, what do you see in the, in the future as far as where you want the program to go and what you're planning? So RISE has been taking a community approach to interrupting violence. And my hope is that when the quarantine is over, right, we can continue doing that, but also focusing on working with people causing harm and helping them get on that path to, to accountability that we were talking about, that we've been talking about a lot. And going back to the basics, right? What is a good apology? Talking about communication skills. What are the small steps that people could take and what are the large steps they could take, right? Really focusing on getting to the root of these issues and we'll do in the community work that we're doing, but just making it like, you know, just expanding our reach, really. That's really what my hope is once this quarantine is over. Of course, we don't know when that's gonna happen, but <laughs> hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, especially that our our project is so community based. Like now that we're working virtually, we have to understand that not everyone is privileged. And I think when we were when and I'm just saying we, not just our project, but like the city in general. Like sometimes we take we take for granted a lot of the privileges that we may have. We're just like, okay, we'll just go virtually on Zoom, or we'll do this, or we'll do that. But understanding that a lot of the communities that we're serving, demographics that we work with on a daily basis, that many of us are a part of, may not have access to, you know, working internet that's like good enough to go on Zoom, or or maybe somebody might feel um, intimidated by having to use the internet and things like that. So for us, it's just, we can't wait for the pandemic to, you know, just for this all to just be a, a part of the past so that we can really get back to, um, and I get back, we have been out in community now as, you know, we've been phasing, you know, phase one and phase two, we've been coming back out in community, but we worry about the winter season that's coming up and how we're still going to be able to keep our, our feet on the ground and really reaching out to individuals that need this support. But what I really see us going um, in, in is just, again, increasing our intentionality, where it's just like, okay, we're really working on changing the social norms, and we're really wanting to work with people who are causing harm. Where else can we insert ourselves? Where else can we really be working with these individuals that really need to, you know, have self-reflection from someone that's not forcing them to be talking to us because we're not a mandated project. You know, that's also what makes us, and we, we should have mentioned this earlier, that we're working with people from harm. And what makes us different from other projects is that we're not working from a mandated space. Like, they're, we're not court mandated or anything like that. So really trying to find those avenues of where we can reach out to individuals. So I really see this project um, not only working community, but working in different communities, meaning like jails and, um, and seeing how we can really insert ourselves to people that may already have maybe doing um maybe fighting a case right now or maybe doing some time with a dv related ipv related issue um, or case so i really see us going into that round so i'm very very um optimistic and seeing what that can look like and very interested to see that where, where, where that'll take us and I, I just wanted to add on to what Haley was saying but and i think this is what we kind of were talking about before but I also would like for us to eventually become one of those models that people do use, right? Um, we talked about the traditional models that, that people have been using with domestic violence and intimate partner violence and how that hasn't really been working, right? Because IPV has remained stagnant, right? So what, it what would it look like for RISE to become one of those models, right? For RISE to become a sustainable approach to intimate partner violence and 
I'm just like really interested in, in us growing. And I think Altabar was talking about this too earlier about us growing nationwide. What was that Altabar you was mentioning? Oh yeah, I was saying that uh, to the point of us being a, a cure violence wraparound service, right? The same way that the, the cure violence model has spread, right? The possibility of us spreading with the cure violence model in a way that all cure violence programs, not only in New York, but like in Chicago and all other places that exist, having this type of wraparound service that allows this gap that exists, which is serving that space in between that, that intersection of fund violence and gun violence, is failed not only like in our communities, but nationally, internationally. Well, I know one way you guys get the word out is through Instagram. You do a lot of live things on Instagram. So maybe uh, you want to share how people can find out more about you through your Instagram and uh, maybe some other places, too, if you have other social social feeds. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and you can find us by we're at the Rise Project New York City. So Rise Project NYC, really Rise Project NYC. And our Twitter name is the same, and you'll find us at the Rise Project and Facebook. Yeah, our social media is one of the ways that we do try to reach out to people, and we're posting content about um, what is a healthy relationship like, what is intimate partner violence, especially since it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We're posting um, content about what is IPV, what are the signs to IPV, right? Um, how do I identify it? How do, uh, how do you hold yourself accountable if you're causing harm in the relationship, right? And we're also doing lives with people, which we do it every Thursday at 7 p.m., so catch us this Thursday. Um, but we're doing lives with everyone, um, with people. We're doing, like, interviews with other organizations doing the work, um, and also people who are experiencing things, right? Experiencing uh, what violence in their neighborhoods, talking to real people about real things, real conversations. Great. Well, I just want to thank you, all three of you, for joining me today on In Practice. It's really been interesting to hear you guys, and you guys are doing incredibly important work, and I'm proud to work at the Center for Court Innovation with all of you. So thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. And I'll also say that if anyone is interested in being um, in receiving our newsletters, we do have a text line. So if you do, if you text RISE to um, 55444, you'd directly be um, connected to our, our mailing list. So we definitely encourage everyone to text us so you can be in the loop of what services we're able to provide, resources, and just general community events. And I don't know if I missed this part of me, Carolyn, if you said this already, but also on the Instagram, uh, RISE Project NYC that Carolyn mentioned, we go live every Thursday. It's 7 p.m. now, right? I just want to make sure which are going to move yeah, time. Yes, every Thursday, 7 p.m. Sometimes <laughs> it will be uh, two RISE members having a conversation. Other times it will be us inviting a community partner in to have this conversation. Uh, maybe even a community member to be involved in the conversation with us. So uh, again, if, if, if you are looking to have that, that in the moment interaction with RISE, we are live um, on Instagram, the Instagram. Rise Project NYC every Thursday at 7 p.m. Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. I, I've been speaking to Haley Nalasco, who's the director of Rise, and Al Tabar Hudgens, who's the uptown coordinator, and Caroline Batanza is the downtown coordinator of Rise. And I'm Rob Wolf with the Center for Court Innovation, and this is our In Practice podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And you can learn more about the Center for Court Innovation at our website, www.courtinnovation.org. 
Thanks so much for listening.